Well, we're so glad that you're joining us here at Sanctus Church, whether you're in Ajax or Port Perry or, or Bowmanville or somewhere online, you're most welcome today. We're in the book of Galatians, and uh, maybe you're joining us for the first time or you've been with us uh, for this whole journey. Imagine if you went to your Thanksgiving dinner in the next few hours, and you arrived and, and you were most welcomed by family and friends, and as you gathered, uh, the traditional uh, meal was served, maybe tam or, or turkey, or, or I don't know what you have in your tradition. And then, of course, there was squash, and there was carrots, and there was peas, and there was corn. And imagine if the family that you are part of looked at you and said, we know you hate corn. We've known that since you were born. But we just want to inform you, unless you eat this corn today, you are no longer part of the family. You would be like, excuse me? They're like, no, seriously, we've had a meeting without you. You must eat the corn. If you do not eat the corn, not only are you removed from the Thanksgiving meal, you're removed from the family, you're out of the will, you're done. Will you eat the corn? You'd be like, am I in the twilight zone? What's going on? Imagine if you were preparing for a run. And as you were preparing for a run, you were training hard and you were going to do like a, a biathlon or, or some form of a, a, a difficult run and you showed up and you'd done your work and the people said, oh, we're so glad you're here and here's your, here's your number and we're so excited that you're participating. And just so you know, we've decided that you have to wear a backpack and in the backpack, we're going to put 50 pounds of rocks and you need to run with it and you'll end. And you're like, well, hold on. And they're like, no, you must you must do this or you cannot participate in the run. All of us would be going, that would never happen. That's so weird. That's, that's almost idiotic. That's so wrong. Now we all go, well, why are you telling us these fake illustrations? Here's why. Because in the book of Galatians, this actually really happens where people are showing up to run a race and people are showing up to be part of a family and they are being told... They cannot remain in the family or join the family unless they accomplish certain things with added barriers. And now people are like, well, maybe I can't run the race or maybe I don't want to be part of this family because it's getting more and more difficult just to get through the door. Now we've been talking about this. Galatians is written 16 to 20 years after the death and physical resurrection of Jesus Something shocking and unexpected is taking place. All these multi-ethnic communities, former people that hated each other, Jew, Greek, slave, free, are all now meeting in these small homes or in larger gatherings, and they all claim they've encountered Jesus. And Paul is this leader who's planted all these churches across what we now call Turkey, and there's amazing things taking place. And then he leaves to plant other churches, and a crisis begins. This is only 16 or 17 years after Jesus rose from the dead. Other so-called Christian pastors and leaders show up and they show up to these churches and begin to teach actually Paul was wrong, his message was wrong, and Paul's a fraud. And we've seen this over the last two weeks. These teachers were called Judaizers and they posed a very difficult problem right at the beginning of our movement. They were Jewish people, Orthodox Jews, and they did believe Jesus rose from the dead. And they did believe Jesus was the Messiah. And they did believe Jesus actually fulfilled the whole Jewish faith. They actually believed Jesus was God in flesh. So they're Orthodox Jews that actually believe all the things about Jesus. So we'd go, oh, they are, of course, Christians. And they were. But there's a problem. They went one step further. They added you have to eat this to get in. You have to wear this to keep running. They started saying, oh, you have to believe all of that about Jesus and you must become fully religiously Jewish. Then God will love you. Then God will save you. Then you'll be part of the family. 
There's prerequisites to get into the room. You have to do certain rituals to stay in the room and you have to keep working hard to prove yourself to God. They kept saying, well, Paul, what he taught you is the beginning point, but it's watered down and it's too easy and it's inadequate. It's, it's actually not right. One person summarized their view this way. Not all Jewish people are Christians, but all Christians must become Jewish. And their goal was simple. They wanted to drive a wedge between Jesus and Paul and Paul and Peter and Paul and the other apostles. They wanted to prove that God was on their side and Paul was false. So the battle lines, we found out, were drawn. Paul has taught, here's how one summarized it, Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus is work alone, grace alone, faith alone. We don't need to help Jesus save us. He's, he's the savior. But the Judaizers come along and say, no, 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 it's Jesus Oh, plus these things, these rituals, and then you become a Christian. Now, there are multiple key things that make you Jewish, not just by ethnicity, but by faith, obeying the Sabbath, not just obeying the Ten Commandments, but obeying all the laws around that, food laws. But the main symbol of Judaism since the time of Abraham has been circumcision. That was the act and the symbol of the Jewish faith. And so what I'm going to do today on this beautiful Thanksgiving morning is I'm going to give us a little history lesson on Greek and Roman views on circumcision. Welcome to church, everyone. And the reason why we need to understand this, a guest is like, really? No, it's okay. You're fine. The reason why we need to get this is because we will not understand the power of the gospel and also what's at stake without it. Here's how one historian writes it. Greek and Roman societies widely practiced public nakedness. In other words, they're the opposite of our culture. They abhorred, though, one thing. They abhorred the bearing of the tip of a man's penis. To expose the glandus was considered humorous, indecent, or both. And this combination of attitude could be and often was devastating to Jews because all male Jews were circumcised. Enjoying oneself at the Greek gym or the Roman bath, nudity was expected and normal. It was popular and stylish. This is, this is, listen, this is the golf course of 2,000 years ago. Here, politics were discussed, business deals were concluded, athletic contests and expo- exhibitions were conducted also in the nude. So participation in athletic competition usually was a prerequisite in Roman culture for social advancement. Yet, if you had a circumcised penis, it actually precluded you from all of this. The Roman emperor Hadrian so loathed circumcision as much as castration, saying it was an offense to the Greek notion of beauty, he outlawed it in the Roman Empire. So Jewish men already are social religious outcasts, politically, socially, and in business dealings because of their private parts. And now the Judaizers are coming along and saying, oh, by the way, if you want to truly become a Christian, you also need to do that act. And now everyone's going, well, wow, I mean, I want to be a follower of Jesus, but now I'm going to have to give up business plans and all these other barriers come up. And they're like beginning to wonder, well, I want eternal life and is this really needed and maybe I need to do it. And all this confusion is happening and Paul shows up and says, stop. The whole purpose of Jesus coming was to set us free and make us free and we need Christians in politics and in business and we need us, our our people in athletics. We need our people everywhere because we're here to transform the world and you're setting up barriers that actually are not true, are not biblical and God has not demanded this. So Paul keeps responding to these false teachers. But the fight didn't end. The fight spread. 
and had potential to split the Christian movement, break it at its core, and who would win and what would be the outcome. Now, it's easy to look back here, sitting in 2019, with no emotion going, this is really weird. But everything that we believe as Christians is at stake in this moment. And as we're about to see, it will come full circle back to Jerusalem. Now, it was John Stott, the great famous Anglican pastor and leader and thinker, who basically summarized this part of the story like this. It was one thing for the Jerusalem leaders to give their approval to the conversion of non-Jews, but could they approve of commitment to Jesus, the Messiah, without inclusion to the Jewish faith? In other words, was their vision big enough to see the gospel of Jesus not as a reform movement within the Jewish faith, but as good news for the whole world? Would the church of Jesus be an international family of God or would it not? So let me put it this way. Is this a Jewish thing? Or is this a global thing? Well, Paul has already emphatically said, and we learned this last week in Galatians 1.11, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not from human origin. I didn't receive it from a person. I wasn't taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. There was no angel show up. There was no middleman. I didn't listen to a podcast. I didn't go to a public debate. I didn't read a bunch of books. Don't you remember who I was? I was a world-class scholar in Judaism. I hated Christians. I was actually involved in murdering them. I thought Jesus was a fraud and a charlatan, and I encountered him physically risen from the dead. Jesus himself actually met me. I wasn't high. I wasn't dreaming. I wasn't in a trance. I wasn't going through some psychological breakdown. I encountered him. Jesus is revealer and revelation. There was no reason for me to give up my former life. And we heard this whole story over the last two weeks how Paul was deeply transformed. And that's not the end of the story. In the middle of this book, he's giving a mini autobiography. And between chapter one and chapter two, 14 years passes. And, and we begin to see that these false teachers that he's confronting in Galatia have now gone to Jerusalem. So it reads like this in Galatians 2.1. 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus along with me. So you got three people. Paul, we've got his story. Then you've got Barnabas and Titus. And you go, okay, do they matter? Why does it matter? How is it gonna affect me today? Well, it will. First, we encounter Barnabas at the beginning of the book of Acts in Acts 4. He's a Levite, he's from Cyprus, he's Jewish, and he gives a piece of property to the local church, and it's an amazing thing. But as we keep reading, we begin to see how significant a leader he is. Acts eleven nineteen reads like this. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word, notice, only among what? Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people, in other words, non-Jews, believed and turned to Jesus. Well, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem. So they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when they arrived, they saw what the grace of God had done, and he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And a great number of people were being brought to Jesus. Then Barnabas, watch this, goes to Tarsus to look for someone called Saul, who we know as Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met together with the church and taught a great number of people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So Barnabas is an amazing leader. 
gifted, gift of giving, gift of encouragement, gift of teaching, deeply respected by the Jerusalem church. He's the first leader who's gone from the original community to see if non-Jews could be included. He's the one who finds Paul, mentors Paul, introduces him to the leadership, and Barnabas and Saul, now Paul, teach the community. Barnabas is the first one to include non-Jews in the Christian community. And then we have Titus. We're like, well, who's Titus? Well, we'll get there in a minute. Now, Galatians 2 says, after 14 years, I went back with these two other guys, and I went, why? Because of a revelation. So Paul ends up going back 14 years later to Jerusalem, not because of false teachers, not because of the political climate, not because he was bored and wanted to go back home, not because he was homesick. Something happened. He was given a revelation. In other words, he was commanded or prompted by the Holy Spirit to go. So we got to ask, well, what was the prompting? Well, the prompting, amazingly, is in the book of Acts, in the same chapter, Acts eleven twenty-seven. During this time, when Barnabas and Saul are teaching, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Holy Spirit, predicted a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. So they did this, and they sent their gift to the elders, notice, by Barnabas and Saul. So Paul, Saul, Barnabas, and Titus are coming back to home base because of a terrible disaster, a natural disaster. There's a famine, and all these churches who have never met the Christians in ground zero actually give all this money, and they're on their way back to give an offering or do famine relief. So they arrive with all this money to help the brothers and sisters in Jesus. Generosity, Christianity 101, loving the poor. And as he arrives, to his dismay, he finds that the Judaizers have shown up there too. Watch this. I went in response to a revelation. Ah, then I started meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders and I presented them the gospel I preached among non-Jewish people. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not run my race in vain. So he outlines his gospel, Jesus plus nothing is everything, versus their gospel, Jesus plus Judaism is everything. Now by this time, something happened. If you were with us last week, you remember, when Saul became Paul, within three years, he went to Jerusalem and he only hung out with two people, Peter, the head of the church, and James, Jesus' half-brother. That's it. But now he comes back and he meets with every single key leader who's in the church at that moment. And he says, look, I've been teaching non-Jews and Jews that anyone can be saved. Anyone could have eternal life as long as they put their faith alone and in the work of Jesus alone and they don't trust in themselves. This gospel, by the way, this good news would be enshrined by Paul later in two phrases. Ephesians 2.8, it is by grace, listen closely, that you get saved through faith, informed trust. This is never from you. It's always a gift of God. It's never done by work, so no one gets to brag or boast. That's the gospel. He'd also say in Romans 10, 9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, he is who he claims, and you believe in your heart that God the Father raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. So now we're all sitting here going, well, what's the big deal? Isn't this just a bunch of religious scholars arguing over semantics? no. Let me outline in this moment, on this Thanksgiving weekend, what was really at stake. Let me say it again. Is this a Jewish thing? 
or is this a global thing? Is this for one group of the human family or is this for the whole human family? See, if you had to become religiously Jewish and believe in Jesus, all the churches that were popping up all over the Roman world doing unbelievable things, think about this, Jews and non-Jews did not eat with each other and are now eating with each other. Masters and slaves are now at the same table calling each other brother and sister. Women and men are looking at each other through the eyes of equality never seen in human history. At that moment, all of that is at stake if the gospel is broken. Paul knows that God's greatest move in history would wither and die if these false teachers won. So he says, I got to confront this again. Now, how does he do it? A big theological podcast at the theological okay corral? No, this is what he does. He brings a person. He brings Titus. He says, Titus, I just need you to stand right beside me and say nothing for a moment. And watch this. He says in Galatians 2.3, not even Titus, who's with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he's a Greek. So here's an example. I brought him of what God is doing. Titus is a Greek. He's not Jewish like the rest of us are. And by the way, he has not followed the specific rules of the Jewish faith. And yet, here's what I want to say to you. He's saved. He loves Jesus. He's a leader in Jesus's church. He speaks about Jesus. He follows Jesus. He's given up his old pagan lifestyle. I've mentored him. This is not abstract. So is he saved or is he not? Are you voting him on the island or off the island? What's your decision? And he's right here. So say it to his face. Don't just write a letter. Now, this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus to make us slaves. Paul calls these Christians false believers, infiltrators, spies. This is, by the way, a life and death battle. The original language, it's the idea of a military showdown. Let me put it another way. A gospel, a message that places the work of Moses and the work of Jesus on the same level is a false gospel. A gospel, by the way, that places anybody, religious or not, or anything on the same level of Jesus is a false gospel. Why? Because Jesus doesn't need help saving us. He's the Savior. In other words, you can't prove yourself to God. You can't remove the power of sin. You can't overcome death. You can't bring yourself back from the dead. You can't face down Satan. You can't stop being worldly. You can't love your wife or your kids better by religion or be by, by being faithfully Jewish, Jewish. See, Moses was given the law by the living God, and the law shows us our need for a Savior because it exposes our sin. Moses isn't in competition with Jesus. Moses is the setup for Jesus. Romans 3.20, therefore no one will be declared righteous, right, okay in God's sight by observing the law. Through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The more you do religion, the more you will realize how much you will fail. And the more you realize how much you will fail because the standard is perfect, the more you will become hopeless unless you find a savior who does something for you. So verse four, this matter arose because of false believers have infiltrated and they're spying on our freedom. So if you believe this false gospel, your freedom, which you already have, you're already part of the family. You're already at Thanksgiving. You don't have to eat the corn. It's fine. You're already here. So you think that if you embrace this, you're going to have more freedom? 
No, 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 no. You're gonna have to work harder, prove yourself to God, be more moral, be more religious, be more faithful, more, 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 more. Don't give up the freedom you already have. You're already part of the family. Paul would put it like this years later, writing to a church in Colossae. Colossians 1.21, but now God has reconciled you by Jesus' physical body through his death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Do you see any of us involved in that? No, no. God calls, Jesus makes you free. Amen. You become okay with God. You get relationship and forgiveness. You become spiritually clear and clean through Jesus, not through deed, ritual, or work. We did not give in to them, not for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And as for those that are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Now we can read this and go, wow, Paul's a little bit of a donkey. Like he seems to be a jerk here, those held in high esteem. No, 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 don't read it that way. He's talking about the 12 apostles. He's talking to actually about Jesus's original crew those who've given up the most and been with him since the beginning. And he's not saying, oh, I don't need them. I don't care about them. Don't you know who I am? I'm Paul. No, 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 no. His issue is this. The false teachers had elevated them too high. The false teachers had elevated Peter too high and James too high and John too high. And his point was, look, you keep saying that the original crew that was with Jesus is agreeing with you, but actually, I want to say something to you. I met with every one of them personally. They added nothing to my message. You're the ones who keep adding to the message. So who's the false teacher? All the 12 are with me. They don't think you're right and you keep adding. So actually you're the false teachers. On the contrary, they recognize I've been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter has been called to the circumcised. For God who's at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised is also at work in me as an apostle to the uncircumcised. And you're like, wow, that's a lot of circumcision language. I know. It simply means Jew and non-Jew. Peter has primarily been assigned to reach the Jewish people with the good news that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And Paul's like, I am primarily assigned by the same Jesus to go to the non-Jewish world to introduce them to the true living God through the Son of God by the same Holy Spirit. And Jesus has provided ready a way for all of us to come back home. Now you false leaders, he'd say, you false teachers, I just want to end this now so we can get on with the job. James, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the non-Jews and they would go to the Jews. Now, I want you to catch this because you probably wouldn't. I didn't the first few readings. Paul calls James, don't forget that's Jesus' half-brother, Peter, the first leader of the church, and John, who is Jesus' best friend, who ends up writing, oh, a few things, like the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. He calls them pillars. You're like, yeah, 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 that's just a metaphor because they're important people. They're holding up the thing. No. It's way more significant than that and totally ties into why this is a global thing, not just a one-person thing. This is a direct reference to the Jewish temple. And the Jewish temple, of course, is where God's presence resided. Now, here's the amazing thing. The Jewish temple was built originally by Solomon. 
And it reads like this in 1 Kings 7, 15. Solomon cast two bronze pillars, each 27 feet high and 18 feet wide. He erected the pillars at the portico of the temple. The pillar at the south he named Jachin, which means God establishes, and the one to the north, Boaz, which means God is my strength. So you're like, okay, this is really weird. This is a history, what? Okay, these pillars were not just there to keep the building up. They had a purpose. These two pillars were the gateposts, the entrance, the place where not only the people of God would walk through to encounter God and worship him and sacrifice. It says that when God's spirit showed up in the temple, the spirit of God walked through or came through these two pillars and declared that he would now live among his people. And now what is being declared, catch this, because this is incredibly scandalous. And now Paul, as an Orthodox world-class Jewish rabbi, is saying that actually the church, broken day, screwed up everyday people like us, are the new temple. And by the way, at this moment in history, the Jewish temple is still alive. It's still functioning. It's burned in 70 AD. It has not happened yet. And so as Paul is writing this, many hundreds of thousands of Jews are still trying to worship God at the temple. And Paul is saying he's not even there anymore. He's in here now because we've encountered Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Therefore do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you've received from God? Uh, Ephesians 2, 19, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself as his chief cornerstone. So here's the unbelievable statement. You, if you're a Christian, we, the church, has replaced Moses' tabernacle and Solomon's temple and even Nehemiah and Herod's great variations. Why? Because the Spirit of God is in us and dwells in us and the pillars, everyone ready? Here it is. And the pillars in God's new temple where the Spirit of God first walked through to start this new thing are Peter, James, and John. They are the first place where the Spirit touched down with another group of them. And just so you know, Paul is saying, those who are the first members and the first bricks and the first pillars in the new temple are declaring what I am preaching to non-Jews is absolutely from God. So there's no argument here with who, who's on whose side. And it's not just like I'm saying this because I got the right hand of fellowship. Now, that's a weird phrase. It almost sounds like out of a Monty Python film or something. What is that? It means not just handshake. It actually means official affirmation. They said, we're with him. Then it says in Galatians 2.10, so all they asked is that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I've been eager to do all along. And then we go, hold on, hold on, hold on. Like, why is this here? I mean, now you're not teaching me now I have to believe in Jesus and the feed the poor and I become a Christian. no. Why was Peter and Paul meeting in the first place? Why was Paul there in the gathering? He was there, why? To help the poor in the first place. That's where he is. But there's something different here, something even more profound. See, if you've encountered Jesus, if you've actually met the one you're confessing, you will be changed and you will love the unlovely. Right belief leads to right action. Right belief leads to right action. As one person articulated, this is the tragedy of conservative Christianity in the last 100 years. Evangelicals have rightly remembered the gospel, but they have forgotten the poor. 
And the tragedy of so-called liberal Christianity is they have remembered the poor but abandoned the gospel. That is why I chose this as my life verse in 1 Timothy 4.16. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, for if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So let me just break this down. Social justice, advocating for the poor, fighting climate change, making sure that people who need housing have housing. Should Christians be at the forefront of all of that? Absolutely we should be. But that's not the gospel. Don't confuse the beginning with the end. The gospel is this. We are made in the image of God and we are human beings who meant to walk with God and we rebelled and we sinned and we walked away. And now we are sinners under the bondage of sin, death, and Satan. Jesus, who is God, came and lived us, lived with us and among us and lived a perfect life. He died a death we all deserved. He physically rose from the dead and conquered all the barriers back to God the Father. If we repent and trust in Jesus alone, by his work alone, we are saved. That is the gospel. The evidence that you've embraced the gospel, the outcome that you've encountered the king of love is you will love others and you will fight for justice and you will be serious about stewardship. We are called to do both, but never confuse the two. Never confuse them. Loving the poor is not the gospel. Preaching Jesus is death and resurrection. That is the gospel. But we are supposed to be at the forefront of everything where love is because Jesus is love. Now, how does this affect me sitting here on Thanksgiving in 2019? Well, here's the first thing. Everyone ready? The gospel is for everyone. All cultures, all people groups, all nations. We should be incredibly thankful on this Thanksgiving weekend that Paul fought tooth and nail and did not give in. The only way to break racism at its core is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way to deal with xenophobia is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way to overcome inappropriate nationalism is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? There is no culture that has not been touched by sin. There is no culture that has not been touched by worldliness and the devil. Every single ethnic group on earth needs Jesus. Every single culture on earth needs the correction of the kingdom of God because we are all sinners, we are all worldly, and we have all been involved with Satan in some form. And yet the amazing news is God didn't just say, I'm coming for the Jews. He says, I'm coming for everybody. And our diversity, if you're a Christian here today, is that we have a unity in someone that is beyond our cultural differences. Our differences are real. You're like, mm-hmm. yes, they are. But what brings us unity? Jesus. Revelation 5.9, it's the end of time. This is what the new heavens and the new earth are gonna look like. With your blood, Jesus, you purchase for God the Father persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign over the earth. So let me bring this very close to home. Many of you in this church, in Sanctus Church, are from the islands, from the Caribbean. You're from St. Vincent or you're from Jamaica or Turks and Caicos or whatever. You have more in common with me as a white upper middle class guy than you do with many people in your own family or in your own nation or ethnic background. Why? Because Jesus is in me and Jesus is in you. This is really important. Many, many, many of you are from the great African continent. And let me speak to you. When I hang out with people from all the different African continents, especially the African countries, especially the middle and the south, they tell me that tribalism, we have no understanding how real tribalism is. Well, let me just declare to you again, you have more in common 
with someone who is in another tribe that you've been taught is more or lesser than you your whole life, or you've been taught to hate or be suspicious of, if they're in Jesus, you have more in common with that person in that tribe than you do with your own tribe because you share one Father, one Savior, and you have one Spirit uniting you together. So important, we catch this. You want to bring it home farther? Some of you are Korean here today, and this is hard for you to hear but you have more in common with someone who lives in Tokyo today, who's a Japanese Christian who's confessed Jesus, than you do with those people in your own ethnic background. Even more difficult, someone who lives in Bethlehem today, who is a Palestinian person, who is a follower of the Lord Jesus, has more in common with a Messianic Jesus-following Jew in Jerusalem than they do with each of their sides. Why? Because they're spending eternity with each other, not with their own ethnic group. Now, this is very difficult. We need to understand, do we have differences? Yes, we're not all going to vote the same. Trust me, we're not all going to vote the same. Okay? We're not all going to vote the same. We're not all going to like the same food. We're not going to all appreciate each other's cultural differences, but this is the reality. Is there pain between some of us? Yes. Do we need to work on unity? Yes. Do we need to work on reconciliation where we can? Yes. But our unity is in one who is in us and beyond us. We have the same father that decided to elect us and call us before the beginning of time. We have the same savior who has rescued every single one of us, no matter our skin color from sin, death, worldliness, and Satan. And the Holy Spirit connects us, builds us into the body of Christ, assures us resurrection. And that is what we need to show the world because that is what the world cannot produce. But Jesus started it and he still can produce it today in the GTA. That's it. That's it. And we have got to catch this. The NDP and the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party and the Green Party and whoever else party, they can't do this thing. Jesus can do this thing. Jesus can do this thing. So we have to really, really, really defend our unity. We have to be honest about our differences, not actually gloss over things and say, oh, we like everything's fine in Jesus. No, it's not all fine in Jesus, but it's all fine in Jesus. Right? Okay, here's another question. Are you a seeker here today or a skeptic? I just want to point out something as I'm preaching. Did you see the freedom that's offered to you today? You don't have to be religious. You don't have to be self-sufficient. You don't have to trust in education or science or everything else to have the answers. Jesus has provided a way back. All you must say is, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he'll show up. One last thing. Can I talk to this church about one small thing in this passage? Did you notice that Peter and Paul both say they they serve the same Lord, but they had different assignments from the same Lord? This is incredibly important. As things are getting more difficult in our country, for us Christians... I mean, we're post-Christian. We used to be Christianized in some form and, and then that started decaying and then our culture was like, ah, Christian and then apathetic and now it's moving towards hostility. As we're now post-modern, there is no such thing as absolute truth. I define truth. As we're becoming post-social, that is that we don't even know how to talk to each other because of technology. As things are more and more difficult, we as Christians are missing the moment to show the GTA and the world the good news of Jesus. As things are getting more difficult, we keep turning on each other versus declaring what we have in common. Oh, we're big churches, and don't you know we're better because we offer more, and and you smaller churches are all failing because, look, you don't even grow, but we're growing. So, you know, look at our baptism, and then smaller churches are like, no, actually, we're so much better than those big, cold churches because they don't care for people, and we actually care for people, and and actually, I know their name, and you don't know those people's names. Back and forth. Stop. 
We need mega churches in this country and we need small churches in this country and we need house churches in this country and we need medium-sized churches. The Salvation Army Church down the street the big Calvary Baptist Church in Oshawa, the small Anglican Church, St. Paul's on the Hill in Pickering, Christian Reformed Church, Hope, out in Curtis, People's Church in Toronto, Hillsong, you fill in the blank. Listen, do we all agree with each other? No, we have serious secondary views that we disagree. I'm gonna preach on that next week and they'll all find out on Judgment Day we're right here at Sanctus Church. But, no, 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 no. Well, no, no. But, but, my point is this. As things are getting more difficult, all hands on deck. Enough of saying, I don't like a big church or a small church or a house church. That's not even the conversation. We cannot all reach the whole GTA or the world by ourselves. Our style and our size will attract some and not others. And that was God's plan all the time. The husk and the seed is the best analogy. The husk can change, but the seed cannot Our church feels like Starbucks and Walmart encountered Jesus. Of course it does. We're in the suburbs. But that has nothing to do with the power of God. The power of God is the gospel. The power of God is the spirit of God. The power of God is the guaranteed places of encounter we talk about week in and week out around here. And this passage allows me once again just to reinforce I need to do this so we all keep walking towards our vision. See, we talk about two things in this church all the time. We talk about common faithfulness, and specific assignment. Every church on earth, no matter their style, their ethnic makeup, or their theological bias on secondary issues, has to have the same belief and core. Acts 2, teaching, and community, and communion, and prayer, and the presence of God, and giving, and loving the poor, and large and small gatherings, and baptism, evangelism, yes. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, yes. But beyond common faithfulness, sometimes out of God's sovereignty and out of holy listing, God gives specific assignments to specific leaders or churches. And and visions allow you to draw lines of size and emphasis and calling. They make you say more no than yes. They force communities to join or leave, but they actually deal with expectations. Let me say again out of the passage, for God who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the Jews was also at work in me as an apostle to the non-Jews. Most Christian leaders and pastors think that common faithfulness is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the story. And sometimes it is. But much of the time, it is not. When leaders and communities are listening to the Holy Spirit, we begin to understand what our unique assignment is. When we understand our unique assignment, it builds faith because the faith is established not just in the work of Jesus globally, it is also established in what Jesus is doing uniquely here. Why does that matter? Because like we've said to you for years, our community not because we're bigger, not because we're better, not because we have more staff, not because we're more organized. That's all irrelevant. God in his sovereignty decided to speak over this church and give us an assignment. And that assignment, again, Sanctus Church's goal or assignment is to become a regional church of 10,000, meeting the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of people in Jesus' name. We didn't look to the south and say, I want to be a big church. We didn't say, oh, our big church is cool. Let's be like them. This is spirit-breathed, spirit-given, and spirit-assigned. And we are responsible to do this. Why? Because as we do this, we know that we have God's backing. We know that we can help the global church and the national church and the local church in the GTA because we're doing our job. And if every leader 
and every community was listening to the Spirit as we are trying to listen to the Spirit, and we all got our assignments, the impact would be so much larger in this post-Christian moment. So here's what I just want to say to you as a community. Do not forget our assignment. We are assigned to reach 10,000 people. We are assigned to actually try to reach out. We're launching Pickering in three weeks. We're about to launch six more sites, God willing, in the next five years. This is what we're called to do, and all of us need to continue to give and serve and understand that just like Paul was sent to one group and Peter was sent to another group, we're just going to the group God has sent us, and we are going to show the GTA what a church can look like, filled with the Spirit, marked by God the Father's call, marked by the love of Jesus, where people who are different ages and different racial backgrounds can come together in our diversity, even not liking everything and say, but Jesus is Lord and we want you to come home with us. That's what we're up to. So would you stand across all sites, whether you're in Bowmanville or Port Perry or here, and we're going to do two things. We're just going to take a moment to thank God for his gospel that many of us have not thanked God for in a long time. And then we're going to pray that God would fulfill the vision he's assigned to us. So Lord, Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you. First and foremost, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're here. Thank you that you're among us. And thank you, you decided that you loved the whole world. Thank you. Thank you that in 2019, we're sitting in communities all around the world, made of all different people, because you inspired Paul to fight falseness. And we affirm, and we want to say amen again to the gospel, that it's grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone, and him alone. Lord, we pray for those among us who are searching and struggling and wondering. And just like you encountered Saul who made him Paul, would you meet them? Uh, Lord, we also just pray you'd continue to guard our diversity. During these political times of tension, uh, during these times of nationalism, during these times where we are being tempted through parties and through social media to turn on each other, remind us of our profound unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Lord, for being arrogant against other churches that do really love you and we think we're better because we're bigger or contemporary or fill in the blank. Lord, forgive us. Our prayer today on this Thanksgiving is that you would pour out the Holy Spirit on every house church and every small church and every medium-sized church and every large church and every mega church. They would hear their assignment and the kingdom of God would exponentially grow across, across our country. Give us unity and humility between each other. Help us to love each other even when it's hard. And we just continue to pray you do the unnatural and the unusual among us as we go to Pickering and then beyond. In Jesus' name, we all sit together. Yeah, amen. So we're going to respond this way together. We thought this would be right. We're going to respond with communion because communion is the great symbol of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the symbol of our unity. Hundreds of millions of people have taken communion in the last 24 hours. Did you know that? And we're all declaring the same thing, that Jesus, just before he died, took bread at Passover and he broke it. He said, my body's going to be broken for you. He took a cup of wine and said, my blood's going to be spilled for you as a new covenant, a new agreement. And anyone who's a follower of Jesus today can take this, anyone. If you're doing well, if you're doing terrible, if you feel nothing, if worship is dust for you, if you are just like, oh man, Jesus is so awesome. We come because this is a guaranteed place of encounter. Jesus is not in the elements, but he's at these tables meet us. And we know that because the scriptures teach that. If you're a Christian, you're welcome. If you're a Christian and you refuse to repent, you're living another life 
your a secret life or a public life and you're like, ah, I'm not going to obey the lordship of Jesus right now. Don't take this until you come home and say yes to his loving lordship. If you're a seeker or a skeptic or you're not a Christian, you're most welcome. But we'd ask you not to take this because this represents the saving work of Jesus, which you have not said yes to yet. But we always say this is a great place to meet him. <laughs> one other thing, as we come forward and celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, at every single one of the stations across this auditorium, we're also taking care of fun today. Right out of the passage, we see this amazing combination of the, the truth of the gospel and the working out. In this church, on a regular basis, we have this thing called the care fund. We give above and beyond our normal giving so we can physically, emotionally, and spiritually help people, give them free counseling, help them out with rent in our community, food, whatever it might be. And so as you come forward to take communion, be incredibly generous with what you have and give above and beyond in these baskets. So thanks, Lord, for this moment. Thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for how you're speaking. Thanks for what you're up to. Would you encounter us at these tables? Give us the hope of Jesus Christ. Help us to give with generosity and continue to move forward in our God-given time and assignment. Amen. Oh, 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 oh,